So I'm pleased to be giving the uh, fifth talk in this series. This is the fifth and last talk on the theme of dependent origination, which is uh, gives us a chance really to look at two specific maps of, respectively, the cycles that lead to suffering first, and then the cycles that lead to freedom and liberation secondly. And in the previous uh, sessions, we spent the first two times looking at the model of dependent origination, uh, which is an analysis of the cyclical uh, relation of factors that lead to suffering. And that is on one side, on one side of the handout, there is a graphic form of that model. And on the other side of the handout, there is uh, simply the listing of the factors in dependent origination, and then the listing of the factors in the second model, which is called liberative or transcendental dependent origination. And so the first two times, I talked about dependent origination, which is this analysis of how, based uh, on ignorance, which we can think of as both personal ignorance and a more existential ignorance about our depths as as beings. Because of that ignorance, we have certain tendencies or urges which lead us to have our minds, our bodies, our emotions work in certain ways and particularly become, at certain moments, reactive, want to grab hold of things and push away things, as in acting maybe out of uh, reactive anger or wanting a possession, an experience, um, an object, whatever. And, and that, uh, that link there between the mind states, the reactivity, and the actions, as it were, continues and solidifies the cycle. And that is analyzed as a cycle of suffering. And that was what was looked at in the first two uh, talks. Dependent origination is... Uh, generally understood as the principle that things are conditioned and caused. Our minds are conditioned and have causes. Uh, Physical objects in the world also are understood within a uh, uh, field of interdependent causes and conditions. And then the dependent origination, more specifically, is understood in the tradition as this analysis of the the roots of suffering. In the third talk, and then the talk last week, uh, we also looked quite a bit at, given this model of how suffering occurs, how do we intervene in the cycles of suffering? And again, it's useful, particularly with some people here for the first time, to remember that all of this is based on the distinction between... um, the presence of the unpleasant, which we can sometimes call pain or um, unpleasant experience, difficult experience, whatever. But particularly we can call it pain. That distinction between pain and the reaction to pain, the pushing away of what's unpleasant, or uh, analogously, the grabbing hold of what is pleasant. We call that reactivity. It's the resistance to the present moment, the inability to be, as it were, at peace with the present moment. And it's taken that that reactivity is actually synonymous with suffering. Suffering is a reaction, whether to our own physical pain, to something happening interpersonally, to something in the world, where we react and we somewhat go on automatic. And that's taken to be the cause of the cycle of suffering. So just to clarify that distinction, we often say that pain is a given in human life, suffering is an option. We have a difficult experience, we can respond in an automatic, unconscious way, or we can respond with more mindfulness, awareness, non-automatically, and that is such a key part of practice, and that's what this model particularly helps us with, to move from the automatic reaction to the increasingly wise and compassionate response. That's the essence of our practice, right? That's right at the heart of what we do. And so we looked particularly in uh, the third and fourth sessions 
at different ways that we intervene in the cycle of suffering, given that somewhat detailed analysis and where we can really stop cycles of suffering and reactivity from becoming more and more habitual. And there's a lot there. (laughs) There's a lot there. We particularly looked at how we can use really all the tools of a path of spiritual practice, acting ethically, stop certain cycles of unconscious action and reaction, Uh, working with mindfulness, gladdening the heart with loving kindness, going more deeply into some of our more unconscious uh, beliefs, both personal and existential. All of these are means, and this is really the um, breadth of the spiritual path, is all, can be all seen as ways to stop these uh, continuation of the cycles of repetitive suffering. Whether it's personal, whether it's relational, whether it's social and collective. We can understand what skillful, wise, and compassionate intervention means in all of these domains. So that's the backdrop for those of you who've been here for these last four weeks for today. And today I want to talk about this further model and give a full outline of this further model, which is called the model of liberative dependent origination or transcendental dependent origination. And that is the, that is the model or the analysis of what are the causes and conditions for freedom. So we have the analysis of the causes and conditions of suffering and then the analysis of the causes and conditions for freedom. And that, as it were, completes the picture. You know, that gives a full sense of things. And um, so a few words about that model. I started to bring it in last time. The, uh, and we have the handout that uh, doesn't have a graphic image of it, but it has the name, Liberative Dependent Arising, and it has the 12 uh, factors that are involved, which I'll go through today. So a few words, a few words of introduction. If anyone doesn't have that handout, it should be either on the chair or if we use those all up, you can um, share with someone next to you. Okay. That so should be on the chair, which is right near that pillar. If it's still there, huh? It's empty. Okay. That could that could um, elicit a Buddhist joke, which I will not <laughs> make. <laughs> okay. So if you can share, that would be great. Okay. Um, so the um, the analysis itself comes from one particular text which is a fairly obscure text, and this teaching is not so common, which is in some ways unfortunate. We have the teaching on the analysis of suffering is incredibly central, sometimes taken to be the core teaching of the Buddha, and it does, of course, point to freedom and all the other teachings and practices point, but this is a very interesting analysis. It comes from a text called the Upanisa Sutta, which is translated as the Discourse on Supporting Conditions. And it is... uh, the title of this kind of dependent arising or dependent origination is the Lokuttara Paticca Samapada. Paticca Samapada just means dependent origination. It's the same word as in the analysis of uh, suffering. And Lokuttara literally means beyond the world, which is why transcendent or transcendental might be a more accurate title. But Loka or world is also a kind of a coded word in the text of the Buddha. And it often doesn't mean so much the phenomenal world, but the world of suffering. So, so I, I prefer to translate. It's not a literal translation, but I think for me it's a more helpful translation. I translate it as, and, and others translate it the same way, as liberative or liberating dependent origination. It's also sometimes called uh, the radiant wheel <coughs> or, the, or the wheel of awakening. And it's um, the model 
is that uh, I'll, I'll give the whole model very, very briefly, and then I'll go through the different factors. And I, I should say that uh, what's particularly interesting for me are three aspects of this model that can uh, really be helpful for our practice. And I want to go through this model with an eye towards how does this model help support our practice, not so much as an exploration of a abstract teaching or doctrine, but how is this really, how can this be useful for me? And I find particularly that there are going to be three areas which I find particularly useful. One of them is that the whole cycle with which we begin the movement towards freedom starts with a different relationship to suffering. When we see and work with suffering in a non-habitual way, everything gets started. Everything changes. So I want to focus on that. A second one, a second focus area, is on the important place of joy, delight, bliss, and happiness in this path. You know, we might not quite see that if we're always talking about suffering and getting beyond suffering. Um, But actually that in the development of practice, joy, bliss, happiness, rapture in the body, uh, all play a very, very significant role and are actually conducive to the deepening of concentration and insight. So that's a second theme that I'll give a special attention to. And then the third theme that I want to particularly focus on is how concentration is a very crucial factor for insight. So that's, those are the three areas that I think are particularly useful for our practice. But you can see that the model, if you just look at the handout and look at the 12 factors, I'll go really briefly through this so there's an overview. The starting point is this different relationship to suffering. So interestingly, the model of liberative dependent origination begins where the model of dependent origination related to analyzing suffering ends, that is, with suffering. You know, in the first model, dependent origination, the analysis is what are the factors that eventually lead to suffering. Here, the starting point is seeing that this changed relationship where suffering becomes something we don't just get lost in, but we have a way of working with it so it, so to speak, is workable. Suffering becomes workable rather than simply a curse. That makes leads to a certain opening of uh, faith or confidence that uh, experience is workable, that I can do this, that I can actually not be at the mercy of my conditioning and of my particular fate, right, or my particular difficulties, that I'm not simply at the mercy of my... And this can engender faith, which can lead to a quite a bit of joy. And I'll go into more detail on how that happens, but it can lead to a certain kind of joy. When the joy deepens, it becomes a kind of rapture, which can have a strong bodily or somatic component. The rapture eventually cools out and becomes a kind of calmness or tranquility, which uh, also starts to open up a quality of happiness, a quality of just resting in experience. It's more happiness as contentment than happiness as some kind of effusive, you know, uh, state of mind. So it's more happiness in the sense of a deep rest and contentment with one's life, with experience, more like that. That happiness, as you can see, that sense of contentment tends to quiet the mind. The mind is not so all over the place, not so distracted. We, in a sense, are more centered, and that opens up more concentration. The mind gets more still, more steady. That in itself then leads further to a clearer seeing. When the mind is not, doesn't have so much static, as it were, we actually can see more clearly and we start to see into our experience much more deeply. Um, as we, that, and that's called knowledge and vision of things as they are. 
And as we see more clearly, we start to see, among other things, the roots of suffering. And we are, to some extent, disenchanted with our previous habits. It's interesting. We are not so caught by what used to catch us, so to speak. And there's a certain disenchantment, which can be a hard experience, can be a disillusioning experience. Sometimes even we change friends as we take this more seriously. But there's a certain disenchantment sometimes with some of what used to hold us. I'm not so interested in becoming, uh, you know, in accumulating experiences that are pleasant, right? And I may be more interested in seeing if I can really touch those depths of contentment and see what stands in the way of greater happiness and greater seeing. That leads to a certain kind of, uh, the word is, is dispassion, which is, which is a sense that I am not so driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. I am not so driven by that. And I am more, again, there's a kind of contentment, resting and so forth, which as it deepens, opens up to liberation, which is understood as the full absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. We could also speak that we experience a kind of partial liberation all the time, right? that we have moments where we uh, are free of greed, hatred, delusion. We see clearly we're at peace. And in a way, um, the practice really helps us to, uh, as it were, increase those, num- those moments, have more of them, <laughs> have more contentment and peace. And, that, and in this model, then that sense of liberation is also in the tradition connected with a kind of review of what has happened. So there's a kind of self-reflection. Oh, the factors of greed, hatred, and delusion are no longer present. Or if we were talking about a more momentary liberation, we would say, gee, I used to be caught when that person said that. I used to just go right back and get totally trapped in that interpersonal reaction, reaction, right? And now I'm not. Hmm, I must have worked through something, right? So it's... So all of this is kind of common sense, but it's a very interesting map, isn't it? You know, and it's not, it's really, I think, in a sense, all of these are happening. And there are some interesting relationships among the 12, such as I've pointed out, particularly those three I mentioned, but probably it's actually a more holistic model, right? And they're all kind of, we can all, you know, go from one to another, but there is a particular relationship between some of them, as I, as I mentioned. And it's probably not entirely linear, linear probably not a circle, probably more like a spiral where where we deepen in some way and then we go back to some other part of our lives where we work with something like that same model. So um, not to take it uh, overly overly literally. Okay, so interesting model, right? Interesting. So again, I'll emphasize those three points in particular, which are the link between suffering or a different relation to suffering and having confidence and faith and then the place of joy, bliss, happiness in practice, and then the link between concentration and um, insight. Okay, so so this first um, this first link again is interesting because to see to see that suffering is the beginning of a cycle that goes towards greater freedom, in a sense, is a little counterintuitive, right? We think, oh, people are caught in suffering. Oh, there's tremendous suffering in the world. I don't see a lot of people moving towards liberation, right? We can see that, or we know in ourselves, sometimes we just suffer. And I, I mentioned the, um, the uh, interesting interchange between Jack Kornfield and Nachan Cha last week. Uh, the interchange didn't happen last week. The mention was last week. The interchange happened in the, sometime in the 1960s. <laughs> And uh, Jack came up, a fresh, eager meditator, right out of the Peace Corps, wanting to be a monk. And Achan Cha said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And he said, please explain. (laughs) And he said, there are two types of suffering. One leads to further suffering. The other leads towards freedom. And what this has pointed to is the fact that there are, there is the, first model of dependent origination in which suffering is cyclical 
And when, there, when we don't have any ways of intervening in the cycle, suffering just leads to further suffering. And that is very well known. It's very common. We see that in the newspapers all the time. We see that in the case of wars and so forth. It's very rare, in fact, to, um, you know, to somehow have you know, on a, in public consciousness a sense that there's a different alternative that it's possible actually to be with suffering and end those cycles, certainly on the level of a lot of conflict, international conflict and so forth. But here is the second option, that when we approach suffering in a different way, which is what Achan Chah was pointing to, suffering becomes workable. And in fact, um, this is such a crucial part of our practice. Uh, I like to say that uh, when we can actually be interested in how we suffer, how we lose it, how we get stuck, our practice can reach a different level of maturity. When we actually are interested and say, oh, I'm suffering. Hmm, let me investigate that. <laughs> let me, that's not easy, right? You can see. Uh, and we, maybe we try it with the, one, with the kinds of suffering which are least intense. You know, we can try it with small sufferings and so forth. But, but at that point, something... Um, something shifts, um, and we have a sense that um, we can not be at the mercy of our habits, not be at the mercy of our conditioning, but rather use some of the tools we looked at last time and intervene, that I can say, oh, if I act ethically and, let's say, really make a commitment to not using unskillful speech, then certain moments I will not react even though someone has just been reactive with me. And I will try to be skillful. And that the whole situation moves away from a repetitive, what we would say, vicious circle. It moves away from that. And it moves away towards the unraveling of the cycle of suffering. And so this is incredibly, um, incredibly important um, um, starting point. Um, Traditionally, it's said that there are two conditions that are necessary for uh, suffering to become workable. One is we have to be aware of the suffering. We have to be aware that suffering is occurring, which is sounds obvious, but it's not always so easy, right? It's you know because uh, a lot of you know because of the ignorance involved with suffering. You know, or you know, I might be incredibly reactive, but if I blame the other person, there's nothing to look at, <laughs> in my experience, right? Um, and, and so um, we have to be aware this is suffering. Not just this is unpleasant, but this is suffering. We have to be aware this is happening. And then secondly, it's said traditionally that we need to be aware of teachings that there is an alternative. We have to be aware in some way that there's an alternative way to proceed. And when those conditions are present, then suffering becomes workable. You know? and, and sometimes it just happens by itself. I think we all know probably stories of people who had really difficult experiences, maybe with an illness or with a relationship where there was a lot of suffering, and somehow they had the resources of some kind to make the, those experiences learning experiences and to come through the other end, right? That happens a lot, right? We know there are plenty of stories of people who said, you know, after the fact, you know, that cancer was a godsend because it woke me up and so forth. It's, it's, a, it's a strong statement, right? But we, how many of you have heard people say something like that at times, right? Or to just to make statements that something which was really difficult became workable there was tremendous learning from it. It actually sometimes becomes a pivotal experience in people's lives. You know, it's, it seems to be the way thing, things happen. And so the second um, factor, that of faith, or um, we can also translate it as confidence. You can see it's sada. I, I mentioned last time that this is literally means placing the heart upon, something we rest our heart on. And there is a sense that I, I like the translation confidence because we can see that as suffering becomes workable, 
there can be an increasing confidence that I can manage this, that I can work with this, that the, there is a path, we might say, of practice. And I have, as I work with it, I can have increasing faith and confidence uh, in the path, in the principle, right? In the principle that suffering is workable. In the teachings about mindfulness, in, you know, however we express that, in the idea that I can cut through cycles of suffering. And as it becomes workable, uh, faith increases. So this is a very significant um, uh, shift or a very significant uh, relationship between seeing suffering in a different way and faith or confidence. And with all of these, we can actually develop these factors independently. So we can actually develop faith or confidence in other ways. We might read stories of exemplary figures. We might study the teachings. We might compare notes with others and see how they've learned and so forth. And that can build a certain kind of confidence. Ultimately, the confidence is deeply internal. The faith or confidence is something that's in ourselves. We may start off being inspired by other people, but ultimately it's from really knowing through our own direct experience how things work. So we sometimes say that the deeper faith, we sometimes say, is a verified faith. It's a faith based on experience. And that's why I like confidence better, because faith in a Western context often means faith in something that we can't experience, in a dogma or something like that. So I like, I like the translation of, of confidence. As we work with uh, that quality of faith and confidence, there can be a certain kind of joy that emerges, right? Oh, what I previously was tormented by is workable. Oh, how cool. (laughs) To paraphrase the Buddha. (laughs) You know, one of the synonyms of nirvana or nibbana is coolness. Actually, it's a metaphor of a fire being blown out. You know, sort of the fire of being off. So a joy, uh, a joy can be developed. Uh, it can be something, and it also can be translated as delight. There's a joy or delight uh, that this is all workable, and again, it's ultimately resting on our own um, experience. Um, there can be a sense, oh. There's another way than the way that I've been using in my, when I've been suffering and conditioned. There's another way. How wonderful. How cool. <laughs> Again. Um, and I can, in a sense, be encouraged. I can relax. Something in me can be very, uh, very content. Even if something difficult has happened. I told the story last time of this experience where one morning in a retreat... I woke up, I was, didn't get a good sleep, my body hurt, I was irritated, nothing was going right, and I was so content to be in a place where I was just examining my mind that all those factors hardly mattered and the contentment was very, very strong. That was a very, you can tell, that was a very interesting experience, you know, to have. Nothing is going right today. I am so content. <laughs> You know, it's, it's really, I was a little bit saying, what did I just experience? <laughs> you know, it was something that was, uh, it was inspiring. And the experience really stayed with me. I imagine you've had experiences like that where, because um, I was resting in the larger framework, right? I was resting in the larger intention, which actually was independent of what was actually happening. So that, you can see, is huge. If we can... Uh, live more and more, live in more and more from that. And so there are different, again, there are different, if we wanted to focus on, on delight, and I should say that um, in uh, 2010, our March retreat was in part organized by at least 12 talks on liberative dependent origination. And they're available on Dharma Seed if you go to the March 2010 retreat. I, I gave two of them. I gave actually like an hour talk on delight. Was, I was assigned to delight. <laughs> and and it, was, it was a lot of fun. It was delightful. And, and so there can be delight in, in all sorts of ways. I thought I'd read 
one of my favorite expressions of delight, which is actually close maybe to gratitude, I think is, can be an expression of delight. And this is from a wonderful book uh, called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. And, this, and I, I usually don't do this in my talks, but I will read the entire book to you. <laughs> yeah, it's relatively brief. Don't get worried. <laughs> and this is actually from, uh, what's his name, Peter, uh, uh, Peter Schumann, who is the founder of the Bread and Puppet Theater, which is in Vermont. Some of you know, I used to live in Vermont, and they used to have wonderful several-day festivals uh, in which they had theater. They actually had something very much a long time ago that looked a whole lot like Burning Man, way before Burning Man. I don't know if there's a connection there, but I used to go to that, and there was, you know, there was a tall figure that was burned at the end. And I don't know if it, Burning Man came from that, but it was, it was a wonderful combination of art, politics, and spirituality. And it's, you know, still you can go on the website. They have great, thing, great things there. So this is the founder. Okay, so I'll show you. This is St. Francis. This is uh, Delight. This is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m. Wake up, St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. <laughs> he brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. He washes his toes and says, thank you, toes. He gets milk, drinks his coffee, a little bit you know, of time change, but okay. drinks his coffee and says, thank you, coffee. He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture, and up the hill. And the birds come flying. Flying, flying. Flying, flying. Flying, flying. Still flying. (laughs) Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes, until... The sun sets. Good night. (laughs) As delight deepens, (laughs) uh, it becomes uh, what is usually translated as a rapture. Uh, PT is the word. And PT is uh, when the mind gets uh, brought into rapture. We sometimes use the phrase rapt attention. uh, Or when there can be this uh, strong sense of joy, it often, as it deepens, takes on a strong bodily aspect, somatic aspect, that this is where there are energies in the body, where there is bliss and blissful energy in the body that some of you you know, maybe know through meditation or through um, various uh, kinds of uh, uh, body practices. It's sometimes accessed in Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, and so forth. And there can be this uh, bliss in the body, you know, in Heather's work <laughs> as well. And so it deepens. It actually sometimes can be uh, quite powerful and beautiful. It can actually be sometimes unpleasant. It can, as you know, sometimes body energies, they can be activated in their they're not quite integrated, it can be a little uncomfortable. And so there is this uh, deepening of the body energy. When that, those, when that rapture, when especially the body energy settles some, it turns into tranquility, you know, which is, I think, synonymous to calm. There's a kind of deepening. The, the, the body energies, which maybe were first kind of wild and not so organized in one's being, Settle. And this is for those of you who've had those experiences, the body energies do settle. When there's more attention, they get integrated, and then they just become part of one's normal energetic state. But they, they're not so much experienced as like that, you know. And so there can be uh, tranquility, uh, a kind of calm. The, uh, the body is calm, the mind can be calm. Really, that this sense of uh, this is, starts to get into the field of concentration. There is a uh, there is a joy leading to calmness, right? And we're not so much wanting things. Again, this is linked with the other practices of mindfulness, maybe of not grasping, not holding on, 
And there can be a tranquility and a calm, like a clear lake, which is quite beautiful and, and wonderful. Um, as that deepens, it goes further into a kind of happiness. And the word is uh, sukha, which kind of sounds like sugar. And so it's very, very sweet. It's, it's, a, it's a happiness, and it's really taken that happiness is our natural state. Happiness is not manufactured on this analysis by getting things, by getting experiences, by having pleasant experiences. It's really said that when we are in, very much like we can see with children, there's a natural joy and happiness that is simply there when the mind settles, when there's a calmness, when there's a certain um, uh, moving beyond the wanting and the pushing away, the tossing and turning, the distraction. That happiness simply um, emerges. I think it also could be translated by contentment, which is, I think in English it doesn't sound so significant, but I think it's really, really significant to be content. You know, because there's a certain peace there. We could also use the word peace. Happiness, contentment, uh, peace, and so forth. It's, it can be also a sense of really feeling at home with oneself. You know, it's like a deep happiness. So in the Buddhist text, there are anal- analyses of different types of happiness. And we're getting towards the deeper happiness. Of course, there can be hap- a certain kind of happiness from getting what we want, having this or that experience. But here there's a kind of happiness that is a kind of a resting. It's a kind of being at home. And I was, I was also thinking that for me, maybe, maybe you had similar experiences. I remember when I did my first retreat, uh, which, was, which was a long time ago. It was over 30 years ago. And I, um, there was something in me that even though there were aspects of the retreat which were hard, there was something in me which was so deeply content and happy that it felt like a kind of a homecoming. Oh, this is really important for me. I want to, this is my story, I want to dedicate my life to developing a greater insight and freedom and kindness. And, I, and that is a beautiful way to organize my life. And there was a kind of a, a deep happiness which was there, which of course... You know, I remember, I think also the first retreat, after the retreat, I went home and very quickly had an argument with my roommate. <laughs> so you can see this is impermanent. <laughs> it's not, this is not a, a lasting happiness, but it's something that we touch, right? And we can keep touching it. So uh, all of these states are impermanent. They, they're there when certain conditions are there, and they're not there when certain conditions are there. And so we... Um, we deepen in that, in that kind of happiness, the mind becomes more steady, more stable, and this leads very naturally to concentration. So that's another very interesting development that we often think that to be concentrated, and probably a better translation of samadhi is not concentration, which in our language implies the idea of a person kind of with great effort focusing the mind, right? That's kind of the, the image. The actual, a better translation would be unification of mind and heart. And it has to do with more with a coming together of all the parts of ourselves and a set, more like a settling or a resting than this effortful doing that makes us concentrated, which is also very important for our, our meditation. It's something that I think coming with the conditioning that many of us have, which is to be doers, and I will get concentrated. You know. I think it's a very common condition, probably a little bit more for men than maybe than for women, but I think it's definitely there for many women as well. You know, it's one reason we think, you know, almost all of the retreats that we have here at Spirit Rock have about 60 to 80% women, except for the concentration retreat and the study retreat. <laughs> this is true. Um, and so there, there are gender aspects here. Um, but, but again, I think the conditioning is, is widespread. And so when the mind gets more happy, there's a natural way that it settles and can be, can be more still. And this uh, factor of concentration is really, really crucial. Or I'll call it unification of mind. And it's particularly important because when the mind gets more quiet, 
we can see more clearly. You know, it's kind of natural. When we're less distracted, we notice what's going on. It's kind of obvious, right? And in the tradition, the purpose of concentration um, is not so much to have these states of stillness and peace and bliss, which do occur. And there can be some quite extraordinary states coming out of deep unification of mind. But the purpose is really to see clearly, to really notice. Um, And it's said, uh, this is from the Buddha, practitioners develop concentration. A practitioner who is concentrated understands things as they are. So that leads to our next factor, which here is called knowledge and vision of things as they are. And it's the seeing of uh, what's there. It could be, again, in our practice, it could be simply noticing that there is this mind state or that mind state, that we uh, have this pattern, that this story is going on, having the ability to say, oh, I'm having a difficult time and my, my mind is repeating this negative story over and over again. And we have to have a non-distracted mind in order to see that. As we deepen in practice, that knowledge and vision of things as they are is especially the knowledge of three areas, of knowing impermanence, knowing how suffering occurs and the roots of suffering, and seeing how we have constructions of self that make ourselves more solid than we really are. More, and we don't see, and we see more interdependence and in how the self has a constructed aspect. You know, that we have certain self-images and models that we impose on experience. So there is this uh, deepened insight that we, um, that we have. As that occurs, there's, um, there's a natural movement to what here is translated as disenchantment. I was mentioning before, we're no longer so bound by the old habits. We are no longer so interested in what might have formerly taken us. And it's not that things aren't wonderful. It's not that we don't have pleasant experiences, but we're not caught by them so much. And in fact, it's sometimes been said that those who have deep development in this way actually enjoy beauty and pleasant experiences more because there's not the web of distortion or the filter of distortion, I should say. You know, and, and uh, the Buddha once said, the beauty of the world remains the same but the wise do not cling. The beauty of the world remains the same. And we can actually, in some ways, have a deeper appreciation when we are not attached and clinging, when the mind is more, more open. And so we sort of lose some of our earlier motivation. That's a little, we might say, a little more self-centered, where we're trying just to get things out of experience for me. And maybe we become more interested in service and helping others or more interested in deepening our own freedom, our own liberation. This is connected with uh, the tenth factor, which is called, translated here as dispassion, which is very similar. It's um, um, literally without that uh, greed, without that grabbing hold. That's what it literally means, viraga. Some of you may recognize Raga from some of the uh, Ayurvedic models of, uh, I think, if I'm accurate there, of uh, medicine, um, same term. But basically, we are not so much pushed and pulled by aversion and wanting. Those do not motivate us as much. And there's a certain calming and greater peace here. And this leads, as this accumulates more and more, to liberation, to freedom, traditionally understood as freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. And again, we can understand that both in terms of a kind of momentary freedom, momentary liberation, which I think we experience all the time, and we can increase those moments, and a kind of full liberation, which I think in the text that's what's primarily been talking about. But for our purposes, it's really to notice, oh, there's freedom now. Again, that example may be Five years ago, when someone would have said this at work, I would have been bent out of shape, and now I stay centered, and I have a kind of freedom there. That's, I think on an everyday level, that's what we're talking about, that all of this leads towards that sense of freedom. And um, there's 
we touch more that sense of the depths of our own mind and heart, you know, and which the Buddha often talked about and we experience often as luminous, that our being is increasingly felt as luminous, as this glowing um, center, maybe that's not the best word, this glowing energy of clear seeing and kindness. And we, see, we, we touch that more, and what, what formerly drove us is no longer present. So again, there is the movement to experience that in a, this very full way, and there's also the momentary experience of that. And the last factor, again, is that there is a kind of a knowing of what's happened, much like the example I gave where, where I realized, oh, interesting, uh, I'm responding in a way that five years ago I wouldn't have. How wonderful. I have increased confidence, joy, rapture, and so tranquility and so forth. And I reflect on that. And that is uh, that there is, I, ha- I have the sense that I've worked through something. That's really what this is pointing to. There's some knowledge that something's been worked through. So just want to want to finish with a few reflections. So this is a interesting model. And again, particularly, it is pointing to how suffering is workable and really is, the, in a sense, the beginning of the spiritual path when suffering becomes workable with any moment or with our lives in general. The vital importance of joy, bliss, happiness, rapture to be cultivated, to be open to, and the way that that naturally opens, opens up and then that link between the steadying of the mind and, and insight. And, and so we stay with the practice and we keep going. And in a sense, the encouraging teaching is that when we stay with the practice and it's there more and more in our lives, the, the development of these factors is seen as inevitable. You know, the timing is mysterious for our own lives. But to the extent that we stay with this and bring the intentions and the practices more and more into our lives, it's seen in the tradition that this is um, really uh, an inevitable outcome. That if we keep with enough mindfulness, that we will not suffer in the same way and we will open up these other processes. So I thought I'd just end with a um, quotation about that about that. Uh, direction. This is, this is from the Buddha. Just as the river Ganges inclines towards the sea, slopes towards the sea, flows towards the sea, and extends all the way to the sea, so too Master Gotama's assembly, that is the community, the Sangha, um, the community of practitioners, inclines towards Nibbana, her liberation, slopes towards Nibbana, her liberation, flows towards it, and extends all the way to freedom. That is the that is the direction. When we stay with this, that is the direction. So let's just sit for a moment. You can keep the recording going until the end of questions. So some time for reflections or questions or, or comments of any kind. And I'll, I'll repeat them, please. Um, so you said that the point of all this is insight. Mm-hmm. This is like just a curiosity question. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Vipassana is insight mm-hmm. meditation. Mm-hmm. Would the Tibetans say that that is the point? Would, is that their goal as well? Yeah, so the question is, uh, if, if this is about insight, um, 
would this be a shared view of um, Tibetan practitioners? And I, I would say that the the uh, you know if we look at this model, insight occurs more at uh, number eight, and so ultimately the purpose is liberation or freedom. Insight makes possible freedom, as when I have insight into my patterns and I don't do them anymore. Right? It's more so. Insight is more what facilitates freedom, but the real aim is freedom. It's because we can have if in, it's possible for insights not to lead to freedom. I can be attached to my insights and say, "Come to my seminar, pay huge amounts of money, receive insights." <laughs> <laughs> could do could do that so uh freedom freedom is the goal and yeah and i think it's it's um yeah it's completely the same goal in tibetan practice expressed sometimes differently and uh there are different ways of, of framing it so, you know and um uh and the, but but generally uh freedom or liberation is the goal and insight plays a key role Thank you. Um, please. Um, I have a con- kind of concern about the last one here. Yeah. Um, so it just seems like it's an opportunity for more grasping and delusion to think that whatever bad habit or yeah. thing was happening that you've actually gotten rid of it yeah. forever. I mean, I know in my own case that I've had things that I've worked on and thought, oh, I did it. I did it, you know. Yeah. There's a certain pride that arrives around that. Yeah. And then six months later, you know, it ha- it happens all of a sudden. I'm going, oh, I didn't do it. You yeah. know, there it is again. And so, I don't know. Isn't there a danger in that number 12? Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a great question. A uh, question of this last uh, factor which is called knowledge of destruction of the cankers. It could be translated also as knowledge of destruction of what's sometimes called the taints. It really is about not greed, hatred, and delusion. The question is, um, couldn't this uh, lead to um, grasping onto a sense of accomplishment, perhaps, uh, or achievement that could be both uh, um, deluded and not helpful? <laughs> And, and I, I think um, here we would want to um, distinguish between this model of this being full liberation but, uh, and, the, and the model as applied to our ongoing experience. And I think in the context of our ongoing experiences, which is what you're pointing to, yes, uh, we could actually have insights and we could see, well, I really outgrew that. And we could see that we... You know, uh, I think it's actually very, very common. We could see that, for example, um, uh, I've learned not, let's say, to judge myself in certain situations. Okay, I mean, I, I've worked with people on the theme of judgmental mind, where they've learned not to judge themselves in some very typical ways, and it's way, way less, and sometimes it's hardly there for at all. And they might reflect, oh, this will never come up again. And then they get, uh, as it were, a more stressful situation, and some of the old habits are right there. Mm-hmm. right? And uh, as we say, under stress we regress. And, and so if that person was really attached to, I've really totally got rid of this, there would be both delusion and it would set up suffering. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we want to um, we want to, in I think the application of this for ourselves, we want to be careful about telling stories about how accomplished we are. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, we could say it a different way, telling stories that, as it were, grasp onto a learning experience and make it more significant than it really is. Mm-hmm. So it's good to really know there was learning, but I think you're exactly right. There is a danger that we can grasp on it, you know, it might, you know, in all sorts of ways. We could, this is a very interesting topic. We could really, you know, I, I see this all the time in working with people, you know, like, like, like the example I gave. So, thank you. Yeah. I see it with ice cream. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. See, with ice cream or, or, uh, you know, I'm. I did. Uh, I did three weeks of this new diet, and I will never have those old habits again. Right. And. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Yeah. With awareness. Yeah. But I think um, maybe one of the additional things that's needed is uh, a lot of this comes up for me when some, somebody else is exhibiting unwise behavior. Yeah. And how I deal with that. Yeah. In other words, like you mentioned, wise speech or yeah. ethical behavior. But I need to know more about that in order to, to reach these states, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. That's where I think I need instruction. Yeah. So the question is maybe about, uh, again, if we want to apply this model to the fullness of our daily lives, do we need to fill out this model from what I presented, which is primarily presented today in a context of an individual working with one's awareness, and a lot of it may be related to meditation. And so I I have a lot of... uh, uh, resonance with your question, you know, as you know, having a lot of interest in finding ways to make these models contemporary in a certain way, but also to see them as ways of individual practice, ways of relational practice, and ways of even bringing them to the larger social world and working with this. So, yeah, I think if we were, when we, uh, for example, when suffering becomes workable, we need all sorts of tools for working with all kinds of suffering. Individual suffering, self-judgment, fear, sadness, despair, difficult people, people difficult in their lives, um, um, illness, uh, the whole range of things. We need, you know, there we might say there's specific, could be specific instructions for each of those kind of situations. And, you know, I'm actually starting to teach a retreat tomorrow called Mindful Communication, where we're going to, you know, we're going to, do a lot of what you're pointing to. And in the last probably two or three days, we're going to particularly focus on being skillful in speech in difficult situations, right? And how do you keep... I'm not going to bring in the cycle in that retreat. I I don't think... I might bring in a few of the points, but I will... You know, there, there will be a lot on how we can do that. And there is, there, there is, you know, as we let's say, work more skillfully with people whom we find difficult or whom we see as unwise. Uh, I think as we have the tools to do that, some of the same uh, states of mind emerge, right? If, I'm, if I really have confidence that this is workable, it can lead to a certain joy. Oh, I used to be when people would say these things about me unwisely, inaccurately, and... Uh, out of no doubt, out of their own suffering, <laughs> I would get ticked off, <laughs> right? And and I always wondered how to work with that. And now I have a way of working with it. And there can be a certain confidence. There can be some joy, and and increasingly there might be more centeredness when the things happen, and more tranquility and so forth. So, so you're right that um, all of this presupposes something that's not mentioned so much in this model which is having a bunch of practices. Of course, it's mentioned elsewhere, but not so much in this model. You know, and uh, although, and, and a lot of these are more the positive and beautiful qualities. Yeah, thank you. I think we're about ready to finish. Anything else at the end? Okay, well, I'm, you know, it's very challenging in giving a talk to have 12 things to get through. <laughs> to really use, use mature time management <laughs> and so forth. So, and also, uh, there's a lot of content. So I really thank you for your, really, uh, your uh, rapt attention, your care, careful and caring attention, which I really appreciate. And uh, I hope that this model is helpful. Of course, the talk will be on the web, so you can go back and listen to it. And um, I also mentioned that there is a text which you can get at the Access to Insight website of a, of a, probably a 20 or 30 page essay 
on these links also by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, the American-born monk uh, and the major translator of, of our times. So that, is, that would be called under the title Transcendental Dependent Arising. If you Google Transcendental Dependent Arising or go right to the Access to Insight website and use their search function, you will find it. So I'm surprised how often I close talks by web references these days. <laughs> but uh, okay, I won't totally end it with that. That wouldn't be appropriate. So please. Well, Donald, I want to thank you for another beautiful series of teachings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your kindness. It's actually been a a delight, partly, to have the time to take, uh, develop five talks on this. I haven't done that before. And to have the time and have, you know, it also comes to more clarity for me. Uh, So I appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity. And again, appreciate your attention and uh, know that uh, you will. bring this into your own lives and your own practice, which is always the point. So, thank you, and may our time together be beneficial for ourselves, be beneficial for those with whom we're in contact, and ultimately in known and unknown ways uh, be beneficial for all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.